talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. I want to get to the changes that are coming up in the news world with uh, Bill Briou, great TV critic and writer and commentator. Uh, but before we do that, I just wanted to ask Bill, because uh, I, I'm on Twitter right now looking at stuff, and we were supposed to connect with Bill by Zoom. Uh, we're talking to Bill by phone today. Bill, are you on Rogers? I mean, I'm seeing a lot of people saying that even after Friday that uh, Roger, that stuff is not working all that well today. Is that what you're getting? Yeah, I am on Rogers. And um, <clears throat> yeah, it's, uh, you know, your messages, I was trying to pick up the Zoom link, and uh, it, I haven't been able to load messages for the last uh, two hours um and i've tried different ways and but no it's something's going on so i don't know if it's a local issue i don't know if i don't want to panic the whole country but there's something going on with rogers <laughs> in brampton anyway well twitter is uh twitter has an awful lot about it so uh, i don't think it'll just be you panicking the country i think there is uh there is something looks like it may be happening things not moving quite right we'll get to that later in the show all right, I wanted to get to this uh, this story because I found this one kind of fascinating. Let me read you the first two paragraphs from a piece in The Guardian, uh, the British paper. It said this, yeah. CNN has long claimed to be the, quote, most trusted name in news, but its recent history has seen the U.S. cable channel court controversy with a shift to the left as the rise of Donald Trump roiled American politics. But now the channel, under its newly installed chief executive, Chris Licht, or Licht, I'm not sure how you say his name, pardon me, is undergoing another rapid change, seeking to roll away from some of its well-known anchors' political partisanship and back to a more nuts-and-bolts approach to journalism. Bill, I think a lot of people have probably, oh, I know a lot of people have been screaming for a long time, saying, hey, enough with the opinions, let's just have the news. But once you've gone down this path, once you've introduced the screaming and yelling and the roundtables and the, not even roundtables, just the opinion panels on everything, can you go back to the staid and standard straight news and still keep an audience? I think you can, Scott. And, and I think that part of it is that we're just burnt out on the opinion and the yelling and the screaming. Um, and, the, and I just think CNN's pundits, you know, maybe, maybe we're just tired of them after all the years of Trump and everything else. Um, and you look at the news that's, that's on now, people want to know about... Um, Ukraine headlines and the January 6th insurrections and all the shooting deaths. So it's been a lot of hard news. Um, and the old guy who running, the guy who was running CNN, Jeff Zucker, he was came from entertainment. He came from NBC. So, you know, he tried to match fire with fire with Fox. But I just think we're all, you know, not everybody gets the great level of punditry you do when you call me. God, let, let me put that. <laughs> well, that's true, though. Like, <laughs> and you're you're joking about it, and sure, I mean, I, yeah, I get the joke, but but we're not screaming at each other all the time. We're not hating each other all the yeah. time, which yeah. is often the, as you say, it's the it's the kindling that keeps a lot of these stations, including, quite frankly, CNN, going for the last little while. Whoever can be the loudest and the angriest has seemed to be able to win the ratings wars, and. I, I just, I, I, I hope you're right. I just don't know if once we've tasted that, it's like that old song by, what was it, The Four Tops, A Taste of Honey's Worse Than None at All. Once <laughs> you've tasted that, can you go back to the more bland Walter Cronkite-style news? Well, you, you know, pendulums swing both ways, right? And I, I just think it, we're probably due for a shift. Um, I uh, Boy, I, I would take Walter Cronkite every night. I'd watch that. And I, I just hmm. think people are... Hungrier now to get facts. We don't know what's going on in the world. 
it's a frightening place. Tell us what's going on, and and, and enough with the pundits. And I, and I also think CNN's, um, you know, like like anybody, you know, if you have if Anderson Cooper has been there for twenty years, you know, you've seen him. <laughs> Just they they may be due for a shakeup in in personnel. Well, that's the other part of it. I mean, you can say, all right, Anderson Cooper or whoever else, um, we don't want you to share your Don Lamont or whatever. We don't want you to share your opinions anymore. But have they not given away their opinions? So even if they're claiming now to just be giving you straight facts, have they not kind of blown that? I mean, w- with Walter Cronkite, I don't know that we ever really knew which way he leaned politically because he never, no, it, he never well, betrayed that. Yeah, I mean... I know this is an ancient history, but it was Cronkite who kind of tipped the balance for for Lyndon Johnson with the Vietnam War. Like he did, sort of say, you know, I've been over there and we're not going to win. And and Johnson threw in the towel. Like he did, he did, he was sort of the conscious of America at the time. And there's nobody of that stature. There's no one voice of God news person anymore. That's no. for sure. But I do. I think in uh, CNN they went. You know, they had the brother of the guy who was the governor of New York who was forced out of office, and then that was another scandal. Like, their on-air people were part of the news, you know, like they were, and not in a good way. So I think that was part of the problem as well. CNN also, I mean, I think back to, in my lifetime, the biggest news stories since I've been alive and paying attention. I mean, you've got the shuttle disaster and you've got nine mm-hmm. 11 uh, and you had, I don't know. I'm trying to think of what else would have popped up. There's a bunch of other ones and the, the war, the Iraq war, for example, uh, it was always CNN that you turn to. Yeah. And now I'm not sure that people it's as automatic. Is it can, can that network get back to being that where it's, if there's a big news story, that's immediately where we go. Or again, is it more difficult because of, you know, we've chased away half the country who disagrees with us politically? I think the war, you know, when Russia invaded Ukraine and you saw the people on the ground that CNN sent, they had quite a contingent right in the main cities. Uh, There was, I can't remember the woman's name. She was amazing. It was electrifying. She was right there helping people cross a bridge, describing what was happening, that was tremendous news reporting, and I think their ratings went up when that happened, and, I, and I'm sure it sent a message to the new team that are run, running CNN now that this is the direction we have to go in. All right, I got one minute left, and I, uh, I, I want to ask you something completely different while we've got you here, because um, two well-known tough guys in the entertainment world died in the last few days. James Kahn, of course, who everyone knows him from The Godfather, also from Elf. So, I mean, tough guy or comedian, take your pick. Uh, and then on the weekend, Polly Walnuts from, from The Sopranos died. Well, how do you, there are people who cannot play a tough guy and make it look credible. And there are other guys like these two, both of them, who could do it. And they were very believable as tough guys. What's, what's the difference? What works when you're trying to be a tough guy that makes you believable? Well, it, it, it's an interesting because both of those actors um, could play comedy and drama. And you mentioned with uh, James Caan, you know, he was an elf, but he did other comedy too. And so did uh, Tony, um, I'm going to get his name right, wrong now. Uh, anyway, the, the, the Polly Walnuts, the actor who played yep. him. Um, 
he was on, uh, you know, six Woody Allen movies, <laughs> you know, playing a thug, and he was in Police Story for an episode way back in the day. So they they were just fortunate in that their training helped them when they got to The Sopranos, and it called on them to do comedy and, you know, some of the funniest episodes of The Sopranos. He's he's involved in it with uh, Imperioni, you know, um, Christopher. Yep. Um, it just they they were able to to play it straight and play it strong and fierce and 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 then also play it funny and that's why I think we love them. Yeah, and, and yet both of them, you could believe that if they got angry, they were not in real life. You would not want to run into them somewhere on a bad day. You, you could believe that about them. Where a lot of other actors who are trying to be tough guys, it's like yeah, okay, whatever. But well, those those guys had the it. Was you know he he served uh, I don't know how many months a couple of years like he he was looting and <laughs> he got in trouble when he was young yeah. and so he he knew what he he knew the drama side he lived it he was in jail and uh, he turned his life around and became uh, a, gr- a great actor and a model citizen. The only thing he didn't do, unlike say Jennifer Aniston, who created a whole hairstyle culture from Friends, he never got those the side white temple over the ear things going the wings. <laughs> Never caught on. It's a, uh, that two-toned look. That was his, though. I mean, it, <laughs> you, you saw him coming. It was great. That is Bill Briou. You can read him at briou.tv. Uh, please do. He's got great stuff there. Bill, I always appreciate you taking time. Thanks for doing this today. My pleasure, Scott. Whether you agree with the Doug Ford government, whether you voted for them or not, that's not what this is about. This is about a a a, a trend. And I don't even know if trend is the right word anymore, but certainly we're seeing it here. Uh, a trend towards more spending. And the Ford government has announced that 73 of his 83 MPPs will either be a cabinet minister or an assistant or someone else, which means special titles and pay raises. Four years ago, Ford's cabinet was 20 people. Last month, it grew to 30. It's now up 50% plus all these assistants. And again, It's not necessarily about who you vote for politically. You can think this is great. You can think it's terrible as far as him, as far as his government, because it doesn't really matter what your political leanings are. The liberals have done this. Conservatives have done this. Everybody now is doing this. I want to bring in Jay Goldberg. Now, he's the Ontario Interim Atlantic Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Joins us now. Jay, thanks for the time today. Great to be with you. So a very basic question, and you've probably been asking this question a lot, and I don't know if you have a good answer for this. Why do people who get into government feel they can spend whatever money they want? You know, it seems to be a trend that you get a new government in and they announce that they're going to do things differently, that uh, there's going to be a, a focus on efficiency. And that's what Doug Ford did in 2018. He shrunk the size of cabinet down. Kathleen Wynne had a big cabinet. Ford got rid of the associate ministries and he really did try to save taxpayers money. But as you said, Over the past four years, the size of the cabinet has grown uh, by 50%. And perhaps more importantly, Doug Ford announced uh, just earlier this month with parliamentary secretaries. So these are essentially assistants to the ministers. He announced that seven, that he announced that 43, 43 members of his caucus were going to be parliamentary secretaries. That gives them a $16,000 raise. 
But also what's brand new is that 16 ministries got two parliamentary secretaries. This is the first time in the history of the province that more than one person has been assigned as an assistant to a minister. And they did that 16 times. So what Doug Ford has done with this cabinet and by including 73 of 83 MPPs in this special pay category, it's unprecedented. And you have to wonder what the other 10 did to piss him off. (laughs) Well, and look, I think that people would have actually been okay with some of this if it was targeted. Uh, In the health ministry, for example, if they had said, look, we're going to add a few extra people in the health ministry because this is an area that was exposed, not necessarily your fault was in place long before COVID and long before you came in power, but we're going to put extra, I think people would have said, okay, I can live with that. But when you do it in every single one, it just seems... Like it's a free for all now, and that's what I'm saying. It's and this is every government, it's every party, it's 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 an issue that seems to arise that people get into government who have been in the private sector, who have had to handle money responsibly, and then all of a sudden you get into public service, which I find even an oxymoron to call it that now. But you get into the public sector, you've got all the money you could possibly need because all you have to do is keep taxing people to find more, and it's everyone else's money, so it's a free for all. That that's what it looks like. Well, that's exactly what it is. And, you know, this is going to cost taxpayers a lot of money because we're talking about 10 additional ministers. So that's half a million dollars a year in salary. That may not sound like all that much, but all of them have to have a chief of staff, communications person, press secretary, all kinds of staff. And so the actual cost of this does balloon. And it's the same thing with parliamentary secretaries. And just to reiterate your point about multiple parties doing this, Vic Fideli, who was the chair of Doug Ford's cabinet, said when Kathleen Wynne was first sworn in as premier and she announced a cabinet of 26 with 23 parliamentary secretaries, so that's 49 people. This is a quote from Fideli, quote, this is a government that has continued to bulk up their cabinet and bulk up their parliamentary assistance so that virtually every member of the government earns a tremendous amount of pay more than any other sitting MPP, unquote. He was talking about 49 liberals and Doug Ford has just turned around and appointed 73 progressive conservatives. So just to highlight exactly what you're saying, all parties do it, but uh, the conservatives are certainly guilty of it this time. Well, and so what's going to happen is we're going to have a new liberal leader. We're going to have a new NDP leader and they will almost certainly point this out and say, look at the waste, look at what's going on. And yet if they were to win, history tells us they would do the exact same thing. So if you are a fiscal conservative, forget the social side, you can believe whatever social progressive issues you want. If you believe that tax dollars should be treated with care, where do you align yourself now? Because it appears that there is no party, federally or or provincially, that believes what you believe. There's nobody that shows they believe it anyway. Well, you're exactly right. And, you know, obviously that's incredibly unfortunate. What we saw in the last election was uh, platforms that were bad, bad and worse. You know, every major party was pledging to rent a deficit of $20 billion or more, the largest deficit in the history of the province, larger than during the pandemic. So you're right. We have no fiscal conservatives in office uh, or in Queen's Park. There's nobody who's looking to respect taxpayer dollars. And I think what we have to do as citizens is demand better. And, you know, but is that just an outdated notion then? Jay, we got to run, but is that just an outdated notion then? Are you and I then talking about this just relics because no one else buys this? 
Well, I don't think so, because what does happen is that when you often have new governments, they do shrink the size of government. So I think it's absolutely essential that when you elect a government, you make sure uh, that you're crystal clear as supporters, that part of the reason why you're supporting that government is that they're keeping government small. I think people failed to do that with Doug Ford. They said they were willing to go along with various things. Uh, and so he's taken liberties. And I think people who support these leaders need to be very clear that a key priority is fiscal responsibility. And if they fall down on that, then they got to change their vote in the next election. Mm. We'll see. Uh, Jay Goldberg, always appreciate the time. Thanks for doing this. Thank you. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. I don't know if you heard, but last week there was something with Rogers. Are you familiar with this? The little outage? A little more than that. It was uh, it was not good. It was not good. It was not just that if you were a Rogers subscriber that you could not necessarily use your internet or possibly use your phone. It was that internet was the interact. Pardon me. Was that internet too? Interact was down, and hospitals were down, and businesses were down, and even nine one one was apparently down for some people. It's it's it was a bad situation. Yuka Sai is a staff lawyer with the Public Interest Advocacy Center. Uh, they are now calling on an inquiry from the CRTC into this. Uh, Yuka, thank you so much for the time today. Really appreciate you joining us. Hi, Scott. Thanks for having me on. So the idea of an inquiry or going further into this, why an inquiry as opposed to simply saying as some might, hey, you know what, Rogers just had a really crappy day and they seem to get it fixed. And so, you know what, every company has a bad day now and again, let's just leave it there. Why Why go further? Well, you know, I think consumers deserve a little bit more, not just in the case of the Rogers outage last week, uh, but also for future potential outages like this. Um, when it came to the outage last week, there wasn't a lot of communication coming out of Rogers about when to expect service back or what, you know, consumer recourse avenues were in place for consumers who uh, want to seek compensation for lost service. So this inquiry, well, our letter goes into two requests to the CRTC. The first is to conduct an inquiry specifically into what happened at Rogers and to figure out, you know, how we can prevent that from happening in the future. And then the second part of the letter goes into uh, potentially opening a public hearing to discuss amongst various stakeholders going forward, what are the best practices in future such situations where consumers are seeing mass prolonged outages I was, maybe I'm naive, uh, Yuka, maybe I just was not paying attention, but I was surprised. I was very surprised, in fact, last week, when, not that there was an outage from a server, because that happens occasionally. I was shocked at how much of the country's online infrastructure was all tied into one company, that one company could essentially take down much of what was going on and that there was no spreading of this to others. So if, if one company is down, someone else could jump in and fulfill those services. I was shocked it all seems to come from the one place. Yeah, it was pretty serious. Uh, it wasn't just internet and home telephone services, but you know, emergency services, access to those was um, out for a time over the outage as well. So that that is a big problem. And the fact that the outage happened on this scale is definitely symptomatic of the state of competition in the telecom industry in Canada. 
Well, it's certainly, if you were someone with malicious intentions, and hopefully there's not many of those around, but if you were, this was pretty much a great visual of how you could stop pretty much everything from happening in the country for a while, wasn't it? Exactly. I think this um, really presented a lesson to be learned for the future in terms of, well, what are the requirements on telecom companies to report and address outages, whether it occurs due to, you know, a routine maintenance failure or, you know, something more serious like a cyber attack. And I think the CRTC has to seriously look into what happened and how to implement fail-safe. Is there a belief or is there an an assertion that there's a way that Rogers or any of the other telecom companies could prevent this kind of thing? Is that what you're arguing for to guarantee us that this would never happen again? Or is that unreasonable because stuff happens? Like, are, are we saying you have to promise us that this could never happen again? Or are you looking for something different? Well, I, I will sort of remind everyone that this sort of outage uh, happened last year uh, around this time in the spring. And I think consumers deserve a regulator that really looks into these outages and whether they're happening consistently due to, you know, weaknesses in the network operations or even, you know, weaknesses in the security. So it's not that we are demanding that this never happen again, but that the commission, you know, do their part in ensuring companies do their very best to provide prevent outages like this or if they do happen to mitigate the harm you mentioned compensation is compensation reasonable for the millions of people who lost out or only for those who could establish that something significant happened in their life that their business was affected and they lost thousands of dollars or something else should everybody get something for this or just those who can prove they lost well I can't really speak to exactly who would be entitled to compensation and how much compensation in cases like this, but that is definitely a conversation that needs to happen. There currently is no code of conduct or universal quality of service requirements that sets out some kind of framework for who is entitled to compensation during outages, how much is there, and things like that. Yeah, it's uh, it's an interesting one that I'm sure is going to be uh, is going to be pursued because, uh, as I say, it's not to me. It wasn't that someone lost their internet. I've lost my internet before. We've tried to do this radio show from home with internet having tough times, but it's when nine one one can't work and when interact can't work and businesses are affected. It starts to become, as I say, it's a much bigger much bigger issue at that point. Uh, Yuka Sai, a staff lawyer with the Public Interest Advocacy Center that is asking for an inquiry into this. I really appreciate your time today. Thank you for doing this. Thank you for having me. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. If you are someone who is of the era that remembers and listened to Paul Hanover, and there are thousands of you who are out there, uh, you know, that's exactly what he was all about. He got it. He was the one in this city. And there were lots. There have been lots over the years. But certain people just 
figure it out and find it and understand it. And that was, that was Paul Hanover. If you're just joining us, Paul Hanover, better known to many as the mayor of the morning, passed away today. He was 96 years old. He had a, he had a, a well, it was, I don't want to say hilarious. It's the word is not hilarious. He had quite a story in later years. He was diagnosed with a terminal illness. I believe it was terminal cancer a few years back. And then we checked in on him and he was still around and they had said, you only have months to live. And it turns out, yeah, you know what? Um, got that one wrong. Didn't really have that. So thankfully Paul got years extra in his life because that, that diagnosis was not quite right, which was, uh, which was a wonderful misdiagnosis. It's one of those ones that you like to hear about. Anyway, around the time of that initial diagnosis, I spoke to Paul, we were talking on the radio and I brought him on and we had a conversation about, well, I don't even remember what we talked about because I haven't heard this interview since then. This was in 2016, in March of 2016. And it was Paul Hanover joining me to talk about all kinds of stuff. Here's my talk with Paul Hanover from 2016. Yesterday, I picked up the Hamilton Spectator, the front page, and Jeff Mahoney, great writer, has track down, probably didn't take a lot of tracking because he's right here in town, but track down one of the greatest of those voices, Paul Hanover, who is still in town, still around, still keeping himself busy. And I thought, you know, it's about time we got that voice back on the air, even for a few minutes. So Paul Hanover joins us this evening. Paul, welcome back to CHML. Well, and uh, it's a pleasure to be on the radio again. I think I'm on the radio. I'm just on the phone here. You are definitely on the radio. And you know what? Everyone who's listening, I was going, I know that voice. I know that voice. It still sounds exactly the same. Yeah, that's right. It was, uh, what, uh, almost 50 years. My gosh. <laughs> I started there in, um, in the end of the war in 1945 and uh, finished 50 years later. Woo. Does, does anybody who hears you, because I know you're living at Shalom Village right now, and you've been around town, when you're not behind the microphone, because you're, when you're doing radio, you're kind of a disemboweled, you're a ghostly voice, they don't see your face. And I know people knew what you looked like, but when you're in, in the home now, or when you're in town, do people ever say, I know that voice, who are you? <laughs> oh yeah, that happens all right. Um, but uh, I, did, I did enough public appearances and on television that they finally... Uh, put both together, the face and the voice. So I got away with a lot. A lot of guys um, uh, who had great voices and ugly faces. And, <laughs> and uh, there were a lot of those in the business for a long time. But then along came uh, the TV and, uh, and dual broadcasting, and you better have a bit of both. So that worked out. Paul, where did the, um, uh, everybody knows you as the mayor of the morning. I, I don't know what we call you when you're on in the evening. I don't know if you have a name for that one, but um, where did the mayor of the morning name come from? Where did it come from? Yeah. Well, we had a genius uh, of a boss, Tom Darling, uh, and uh, he traveled around a lot. He uh, went down to the States, Chicago in particular, listened to what the broadcasters was doing there, and he heard this thing called the mayor of the morning. And uh, he says, hey, I like that. So he came back and not only uh, gave me the name, but he made sure all the mayors around the town came in and officially declared me mayor of the morning. <laughs> so uh, there's no fooling around with that. No, you probably didn't get any kind of necklace or a chain of office, but, you know, I mean, the title is good enough. 
Yeah, it uh, it covered all uh, all the bases. Uh, in the Jewish community, I called myself the Mayer of the uh, the morning of, after Golda Meir, who was uh, president of Israel. So uh, I try to cover a lot of bases. And um, this uh, this coming up um, the seventeenth with the Irish people, um, we uh, we add a little uh, Irish flair to it all too. So we try to cover all the bases for sure. Did you like the name, Paul? When he came back, when Tom came back and gave you that name, did you say, "Yeah, that's that's actually pretty cool. I'll take that." Well, uh, <laughs> uh, I, I I don't, uh, I, I, you know, you you just go forward. You don't uh, we try to look backwards too much. Uh, except when there's a, a royalty check coming. <laughs> do you do you listen to much radio these days, or is it tough for a guy who did it so well for so long to listen and not be thinking about judging it or thinking about how you might have done it differently? Is it hard to listen? Um, well, on the radio, I, I would listen, and 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 the and the, and the real thing that works is still used by the right guys. There's only so many things that worked on the radio, and. Uh, when you find that formula, like you got right now, you uh, keep it going. And uh, our success was making sure that uh, not only was the community there to hear, the community was going to get on the radio itself by mentioning names and um, where you've been and uh, brought in uh, the whole town of uh, Hamilton onto 900 CHML. How much of it was personality, too, though? Because you obviously you, you, you connect with people because of who you are? Um, well, I, I did a lot of public appearances. Uh, some guys, um, uh, I know a few of the guys, like Paul, um, I forget his last name, it'll come to me. He was a beautiful, smooth voice announcer. He was a good-looking guy, but he never liked to be out in the public. He was uh, Mr. Uh, late evening um, uh, schmoozing along on the, on the, on the radio. Uh, but I, um, I figured if I was going to be mayor of the morning, I better get out in front of the people, uh, pick up the material I can use the next day. So uh, they helped me write the show every day. It, uh, it kept you busy, uh, uh, you know, to uh, be uh, on the radio in the morning, at the Y at noon, and then uh, doing some function in the evening. But it worked out. Anyhow, I'm still alive at the age of 90. Uh, and that's fantastic. And, and I'm wondering, though, because you've, you've been in this, you've been around this business for so long, and I, I'm wondering if you, what makes good radio? When you, look, when you look at it now, what makes up, even today, what makes up good radio? I think what you're doing now, uh, bringing in the um, the public, uh, get them on the radio. When they, the best thing that ever happened to radio was the speakerphone. Uh, before that, you never heard the other side of it, just the announcer talking. But along came the speakerphone, and uh, the public got on the air with you. So uh, it became um, uh, a full a full scope of broadcasting. So uh, I thought that was the greatest thing that ever happened for us. I think, Paul, it's probably safe to say that in a lot of ways, many people in society, in all societies, are a little more cynical, perhaps. Maybe a little, there's a little edge more in our world now than there was back in the day. Could your show, if you were starting it up today, could your show work now? Well, I think as long as you're talking about uh, people and what they're doing and sort of making them a, a star for a few moments, uh, in other words, bringing the community onto the radio... 
and they, they feel much more closer to it as part of the family. We like to think of them as part of the family and treat them that way. So I think that uh, interrelationship is, uh, is uh, surefire and it has to keep working. Do you miss doing it? Do I miss what? Do you miss doing it? Do you miss sitting here and talking on the radio to Hamilton? Um, no, uh, no, no. I um, I got into uh, to other things like um, working the racetrack, betting the horses, uh, <laughs> playing the stock market. That kept me busy. Um, but it was very, very uh, a great satisfaction to uh, to uh, have the. Uh, the ability to use CHML and for CHML to uh, help the public. Well, we we uh, you know we 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 did so much stuff out there, uh, you know, of, of um, getting the public involved and, uh, and us getting involved with them. And I think of uh, of, uh, of about uh, two thousand kids coming together uh, when the hula hoop was uh, was was first coming on the market. And CHML went down to the shopping center, and we had a hula hoop marathon, and there was about over a thousand kids showed up. My God! And the idea was they had to keep going, you know, rolling the hula, the, the hoop around their hips, and if it fell down, you're out of the race, and those who lasted the longest won a bicycle. But um, that was the, that was uh, taking a public uh, episode and putting it into the radio and. Uh, and uh, tying us in with um, what, what the latest uh, uh, idea was. Uh, so we had a lot of things going on like that, like the Tiger Cat parades. Uh, we, uh, we Before the big game or the, the Grey Cup, we, they'd parade through the city, and we'd be there to broadcast it live and interview the players. So uh, we tried to bring what Hamilton loved most right onto the radio. But, Paul, after so many years, though, because you were on here again, I, what, four decades you were on the radio here, does it take a while when you stop having that platform? Does it take a while to get used to not being able to speak to people, to not being able to say what you're going to say and, and, and be in that position? Yeah, yeah, you, you missed that because um, uh, it all tied together. I'd be out emceeing something, and uh, I'd see somebody or something would happened, and then I'd be able to use it on the radio next day, and so... Those people who went to that event made sure they listened next day, so you uh, you got them roped in, and uh, CHML was a great part of that. We uh, we just did everything we could for the for the community, and, and and they still do. Well, I bet your wife for a few years afterwards heard all your best bits. <laughs> She'd be sitting there, and, and Paul Hanner would be giving his wife all the uh, all the things he would have said on the radio. What I what I would have said? Yeah. I'm, I'm sure someone, whoever was sitting next to you, was hearing the best of Paul Hanover for a few years after that while you weaned yourself off your career. Well, um, <laughs> I, I don't know. The, I, of course, I, I had a chance to move on to some other things. Uh, the radio thing ended, uh, but I, you know, I, I got lucky with television for a while. And um, then there came a time when, um, hey, uh, they put you out to pasture. And um, and uh, and uh, they retire you. So then you realize you're 65 and you're not the same guy, and you you just accept it. But I was lucky. I was born and raised in Hamilton, so I could could stay uh, involved in Hamilton things, and uh, still like like for example, uh, 
uh, with um, uh, the Irishman's Day coming up, marks the St. Patrick's Day. I'll be up there uh, rubbing shoulders with all the people who used to listen to the program and who I used to talk about. So uh, we still have that uh, we still have that uh, rapport going. Well, Paul, it is uh, it is tremendous to hear you. It's tremendous to have you on, and and you, you sound as if you could be still doing this. I I know there's um, you know, a few years. You're you said you're ninety now. It's remarkable, but you you sound like you could still be just stepping right back in here and doing it. Still, you sound like Paul Hanover, and we're we're delighted to have you back on here for a few minutes. Well, thanks for the. Uh, maybe this is an audition. Well, let's hope so. Let, let we you know if you want to come in once a week we will I'll happily have you in here one evening a week and bring well, I said yesterday the mayor of the morning could become the PM of the PM well we'll switch I, it that way yeah. I used to be I used to kibitz uh, about that when the big cops was um, doing a lot of things as the mayor. I said I was the mayor of the morning, and he was the nightmare. Yeah, that's true. We could have two. Well, I don't know if we want to have two mayors for real. I think one is probably enough. Okay. <laughs> Paul, thanks listen, lo- thanks for doing this. Really appreciate it. And all the best. I, I, thanks for coming on. All right. Good luck to you. There's another mayor of the morning of sorts. He was, well, he was on in the morning here, and he became the mayor, so that kind of counts, I guess. Uh, his name is Bob Bertina. He joins us now. Mr. Bertina, thanks for the time today. Well, it's a pleasure, and I'm I'm really glad to be able to speak uh, about Paul because he was always a mentor to me. When I was a kid at home, uh, he phoned our house because they had a contest called Knowledge College. You had to listen to the 8 o'clock news, and then they would ask a question based on that news. And of all things, one day they called. We weren't listening. And my mother was all upset. <laughs> because it, it, the, the Paul Hanover Morning Show, was, was a, I, the ratings were unbelievable in, in those days. And I'll give you a good example, Scott. Uh, when I was doing the morning show at CKOC in 1969, uh, it was a snowy winter day, and after I got off the show, I'm walking along this, a snowy street, and I said hello to a lady who was out shoveling her snow, and, and she said to me, and she didn't know who I was, she said, Paul said, feed the birds. And I, Can you imagine Scott having that impact on a community that a strangers talking to each other would know exactly who Paul was? taking his advice he was he was quite a quite a person why do you think and i don't know if it was just the time or something else but why did his why did he work so well whether it was his act or his person why did it work so well on the radio what he did well for one thing he worked so hard because you know a lot of us kind of sleepily crawled into the studio grabbed the paper and opened the mic he got there like an hour early and did real show prep. And early is before 5 o'clock, and he did this Jolly Charlie Weather Guy, which was him doing a tape, uh, speeded up tape uh, of a voice that he would play excerpts of throughout the morning, and so on. Uh, And then he was everywhere, you know, and I tried to copy that one, too. You know, I I really felt, you know, if somebody's doing it right, why not do it that way? But he was everywhere, and he emceed so many things. The Benet Brith is one thing, uh, the sports celebrity dinner year after year, but uh, he was always on call when there was an important event to, to be the MC. So he was literally everywhere. That, that was part of it, but he was very funny, very topical. Um, and it's interesting, too, Scott, that we had, I think, a larger Jewish community in that time, uh, of very prominent people like Max Mintz, who had the chicken roost, Zerving Zucker, the Goldblatt's, and so on. 
I'm not sure what the demographics are now, but I, I, I think it was a, a, a somewhat bigger in, in that era. And so uh, he was part of a big circle of, uh, we felt as a family, my father was an immigrant, uh, that there was some reflection of our lifestyle in the way he talked. So he had a great outreach to sort of newcomers, if you will, uh, to Canada. He even had a show called on Sunday mornings called the Harry Harris Jewish Hour. And my dad always listened to that because he liked the music because it was kind of Eastern European, that what they call klezmer-style music. So there were so many facets to him that there was hardly anything that you couldn't connect with. When I was talking with him in this interview from six years ago, not knowing we'd be replaying it today and talking about this, one of the things I asked was whether his show could work today or was it a product of the time that he and his time meshed perfectly was there something to that? Do you think that a guy like Paul could do the exact same thing today? Or was it fortuitous that a person who had the whatever it was that he had came along at the exact time and the two worked so well? Right time, right place. I'll tell you what, Scott, and I'm, how long have you been in the business now? Uh, on the radio? About a decade. Yeah, I, okay. You can't find the management who will <laughs> allow somebody to be a Paul Hanover. Everything is so formatted, now, and I may be exaggerating, but I'm trying to make the point that uh, it's all about formats and demographics, and then they bring polling in and, and all this stuff. So he broke, you know, he didn't break the rules because there weren't that many rules to break, I would say, in those days. The attitude was, well, well, the guy's pretty good. Let him go. You know, keep going until you don't do anything anymore. And uh, So he did it for a long time. Uh, I think that's the real answer, that the nature of the business has changed. You know, it's a difference between driving a steam locomotive and a diesel. It's all different. <laughs> mm. Well, I also wonder, honestly, about the, we are a more cynical people now. And, you know, Paul was pretty, as I understand it, and I didn't get to listen to him very much at all. It was before my time, quite honestly, a lot of it. But he was not a political guy. He wasn't a political commentator. There was very little politics. There was some, but... Uh, but he was not someone who sort of divided his audience. Everybody could be a fan of Paul Hanover and the mayor of the morning, whether you were on the well, left or the right, and there wasn't the anger there is now. I think you've identified it precisely. Now, he had comments about every politician, best mayor money you can buy, you know, <laughs> those kind of quips. But uh, they weren't uh, angry or directed in a partisan way. Uh, he always used to accuse the, he would say, well, the NDP guy, I knew him because he had the brown suit, you know, that, <laughs> that sort of comment, but not, nothing angry in it or, you know, so no, exactly right. Everybody was, well, you almost had to listen. If if you were, you know, if you were a big shot in DeFasco, you were going into work and you would have CHML on. I have to say it would be the same as uh, when I was at CFRB and Wally Crutter was the morning man. The, the big shots had to listen because there was going to be something said that would be relevant to today and to the industry. And that we had that sewn up with Paul Hanover here in Hamilton. That is Bob Bertina, who, uh, who knows a little bit about doing a morning show. Uh, Mr. Bertina, thank you for the time today, as always. Thanks a lot, Scott. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Fascinating uh, research, fascinating study or survey that has been done that um, 
maybe it's really obvious. Maybe this is a, well, duh, of course, but I didn't think so. I was, I'm very interested by this because I think it's a fascinating look at where we are and why we make certain decisions. It's about freedom of expression, free speech. And it appears that, according to a new survey, where you stand on how much you believe speech should be absolutely free or there should be limits of some kind on it, probably, not always, I've already got an email about this from someone saying, no, that doesn't count me, but probably aligns with you politically. I want to bring in Jason DeSano. He's the director of the Canadian Hub for Applied and Social Research at the University of Saskatchewan, who is behind this, who joins us now. Jason, thank you for the time today. I really appreciate this. My pleasure, Scott. So t- take me through this then. The study says that your views on free speech probably align with political views. Explain. Yeah, and, and I would take that a step further and say um, one's political views are also, uh, there's definitely a relationship between one's political views and the region and the, the country in which one resides. So what we found generally uh, across, across Canada, and this is a survey of Canadians coast to coast, Canadians generally think that, um, you know, we have uh, freedom of speech, whether some, you know, fully or, or somewhat freedom of speech. But it's when we start getting into the weeds and looking at differences by political perspective and, and region that the results really get particularly interesting and fascinating. So when we look at political perspective, so the difference between, say, one who considered themselves right-leaning versus left-leaning, um, a quarter of those, a quarter of Canadians who consider themselves right-leaning um, believe that Canadians have very little or no freedom of speech compared to a paltry 3% of those who are left-leaning. That is a huge, huge difference between those two groups. Absolutely. No, absolutely it is. That That is, you said 25% believe we do have. So you're talking about almost a 75% difference. Almost. Yes, that's right. And then when we look at the data by region, and then this is where I was saying um, a couple of moments ago around sort of, you know, the, the linkage between political leanings and um uh, political perspective or region and, and political perspective. Um, residents of the Prairie provinces, so we're talking Manitoba, Saskatchewan, Alberta, were more likely to believe that Canadians' level of freedom of speech is lower compared to those in Quebec. So um, about 20% of those living in the Prairie provinces versus only 8% of those living in Quebec. So again, very big difference by region of the country. And do we know, as part of the research, did we ask, did you ask why people would believe that you should or should not have absolute free speech or some limits on it? What was the, what's the driving reason why someone might say, I think there should be a limit? We didn't, um, yeah, for this particular study, Scott, we didn't ask why, but I think, you know, I think we could probably draw some conclusions based on what we know and what we've been seeing over the last, you know, several years in terms of, um, perhaps social media as a driver of, of people's information on a, on a variety of different issues. Um, I think social media plays a, a big role in how people um, form opinions on certain matters, including um, freedom of speech. I mean, one of the questions that we asked in this particular survey was whether um, respondents feel that Canada's approach to having some limits on freedom of speech is appropriate compared to the U.S. approach, which has the the Constitution and the First Amendment, which places no limits on freedom of speech. Um, Most of those surveys, 80%, said 
Canada's approach is correct, is appropriate. But there are 15% of those who were surveyed who said um, we should follow America's approach and actually have no limits. Again, with differences, uh, significant differences by one's political perspective and where one lives in the country. Has this kind, has this question, have you ever asked this question in a survey like this before or is this new? No, this is the first time we've done it. Um, you know, we sat down as a group and, and every time we do sort of these, these national polling questions, we say what's interesting, what's relevant, um, what's, what's sort of timely. And, uh, you know, the, the word freedom has been used quite a bit in the Conservative part of Canada's uh, current leadership campaign. And we thought it would be really interesting to actually um, get a sense of Canadians' true views mm -hmm. on whether they think they're free or not and have freedom of speech in Canada. And I'll tell you the reason I asked the question is because I, I would find it fascinating to know if the party that's in power and if your alignment with that party affects this. Because right now, I mean, your study found that those who lean left tend to believe that maybe there should be some restraints or some constraints. And those yeah. who lean right, they are more for, I don't want to be constrained by what a government or whatever would say. And I wonder if that has something to do with the fact that those on the right look at the government as not their friend right now and those on the left do. But if you flipped it, and if Stephen Harper was in power right now, for example, and trying to pass Bill C-11 to contain some things, to, to put some constraints online, for example, if those on the left would suddenly say, we don't want a government telling us what to say or not. I wonder if, the, if who's in power affects this. Um, that, that could very well be the case. I mean, I think this is very much a case of hindsight is twenty twenty, right? And I mean, you know, knowing what we know now, we would have loved to have asked these questions about, you know, 10 years ago and, and compared the difference. Unfortunately, we don't have those data. Um, but I also think that, you know, 10 years ago, these questions wouldn't have been particularly interesting and wouldn't have been relevant. I mean, I, I don't think people were really interesting, interested in, in talking and even questioning, you know, freedom or the extent to which Canadians have free speech 10 years ago. So I think to some extent too, that that point is, is, is a bit moot because I don't recall ever hearing people talking about freedom or freedom of speech you know, 10 no. years ago. No, no, no. And, and not only that, I mean, even even our comparisons to the states were not. I mean, now we, we look at what's happening and we say, oh, man, thank goodness we're not that. But even then, I think we looked at them as, well, we're pretty similar. I don't think we think of ourselves that similar, as much similar anymore. So this becomes part of an issue. No, not anymore. I, I definitely think we set ourselves up for potentially um, tracking these data over over the long haul and seeing what sort of changes there are. I mean, I, and I also think you're right on and from the perspective that, you know, there was a point in time where I think we saw ourselves as very similar or, or mostly similar-ish to the United States, but I think that's increasingly becoming less so. Fascinating study. Uh, people can go look it up. It's online. They, there are stories about it uh, that you can see, but it's a really, really interesting study. Jason DeSanto, Director of the Canadian Hub for Applied and Social Research at the University of Saskatchewan. I very much appreciate the time today. Thank you for this. My pleasure, Scott. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Peter Grafe is a professor of political science with McMaster University. He joins us now. Peter, thank you so much for the time today. I really appreciate it. Um, no, my pleasure. Are, 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 you, are you anticipating a, uh, a linking of arms and singing along with the premiers, or might it be a little more uh, tense than that at this meeting? Well, it's pretty rare that there's tension at these meetings. Uh, I mean, the, the origins, if you go back 50 years, was an excuse for the premiers to get together and have a golf game in the summer. 
And, you know, over the years, they've, you know, added more and more business to it. But really, you know, with the, with a couple of exceptions, like when um, Rachel Notley stormed out of the, a meeting a few uh, years ago over a pipeline dispute with British Columbia, for the most part, the Premier sees this as a, an occasion to get together and find a common concern, uh, you know, to prepare uh, to be have a common front when and dealing with the federal government. Uh, but also to share their challenges of what it's like to run a about a province, you know, what their concerns are, and can they learn anything from how other premiers have dealt with similar challenges? And I think your two your two comments there uh, probably blend together about their challenges and their common front, because number one on the list, it seems anyway, is healthcare. It seems every province right now is grumbling about healthcare, not getting enough federal handout money. Um, is this what you would expect if anything is going to come out of this meeting as that common front? Is it going to be a, a group decision on health care? Yeah, I mean, in a way, uh, you know, you can go back to the later Harper years and they've been you know, calling for an increase in transfers uh, to the provinces. You know, they've had a fairly strong agreement on, you know, what that 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 increase should be. I mean, if we go back before the pandemic, they were calling for it to increase at about, you know, 5.2% a year. And that's pretty, you know, common going back in time. You know, since the pandemic has started, they've started to make this argument that the federal government should be paying 35% of the total health care costs rather than what they calculated to be at about like 22%. So, you know, they've changed their tune a little about what they're negotiating for, but they're all on the same page and, you know, see this as, is really crucial in their ability to continue to provide uh, good health care. So, you know, I'm sure they'll agree to it. Uh, the bigger question is what happens when they actually meet with the federal government. If we go back to 2016, I mean, they met in the summer and agreed that they wanted, you know, 5.2% at that point. You know, the federal government said, well, we're only going to give you 3%. And, uh, you know, so the the province has said, no, we, we, we're going to stop talking. And of course, then the next day, New Brunswick and Nova Scotia went back to the table and accepted what the federal government was saying mm-hmm. because, you know, they needed the money badly. So the provinces can agree in the summer. Uh, but when it comes to the negotiations, I mean, the provinces have very different uh, capabilities. They've got different levels of wealth. They've got different sized populations. And so maintaining that common front in negotiations is really hard for them. Well, and, and I mean, look, um, so much of politics is being able to exert pressure and who is able to exert the pressure. And I'm looking now at the federal government saying, okay, on the one hand, you say the the prime minister's approval ratings are not really good right now. And so maybe that gives the provinces more leverage to squeeze more money out of them. On the other hand, the federal government has this deal in place with the NDP that essentially guarantees they're going to be there for the next few years. So who actually in this case has the leverage? Who has the ability to exert pressure? Is it the provinces or is it the federal government? Well, I think it's probably mostly the federal government because if you were to ask the average Canadian, you know, would they rather have, uh, you know, a dental care program and a pharmacare program that is in that NDP uh, liberal deal? Or they just want the governments to change, you know, the percentages that they're paying for for health care. You know, I think they're looking at the new programs as much more interesting. So I think for the provinces in this meeting, what they can see is that this fall, the federal government's going to come to the table and say, well, let's make progress on pharmacare and dental care. And the provinces, you know, response is going to be, well, we don't want to talk about these things until you increase our transfers. So they have to... you know, work between now and, and that stage to really convince Canadians that there's a problem in healthcare, and that problem is a result of the federal government not paying its share. If they don't, you know, succeed to do that, then when the federal government comes to the table in the fall and says we've got these new programs, 
you know, the pressure is going to be on the provincial premiers to accept them because, you know, they're relatively uh, popular programs with Canadians. Well, and that's the other part is do Canadians, and maybe they do, maybe I'm being naive or silly, I don't know, but do Canadians really care who, where the money, which pocket the money is coming from as long as the programs they consider important are being covered? I mean, the polling shows that most Canadians, yeah, don't really, don't really care too much about that. I mean, they do care when they think the governments aren't doing their share to, uh, you know, keep the programs working. And so in the late 90s, for instance, after the federal government had made some big cuts in its money, the money it sent to the provinces and transfers, when Canadians looked at like long lines at the emergency ward or they're looking, you know, at failing cancer care and so on, they said, well, actually, we think the federal government's to blame because they haven't been putting the money in. But that's probably one of the few occasions where, you know, Canadians have actually been moved from, you know, the pretty arcane math of which government is paying for which program. Uh, we will be seeing. We will see if anything uh, emerges out of this as a common front, or if it becomes uh, if it becomes the golf game. Uh, Peter Grafe, professor of political science with McMaster University, always appreciate your time. Thanks for jumping in. You're welcome. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from three to six on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.